We are going to finish up the book of Nehemiah today. Uh, it's interesting that we have been through this whole book and we've kind of compressed some chapters together. We put some things together because they run together. And today we are finding ourselves in chapter 13, the last chapter of the book. And in chapter 13, something interesting has happened. Let me remind you of what just happened last week. The people were convicted of their sin. They saw what they had done. They felt sorrow for what they had done to the holy God of Israel. And they committed themselves to be their best selves for God. They committed themselves to keep the law of Moses, even though they had never known it, but now they knew it because Ezra had read it to them. Now they've committed to that. We all make commitments in our life. We all commit ourselves to God's work. We commit ourselves to a job. We commit ourselves to a marriage. We commit ourselves to all kinds of things. But what happens to that commitment when day-to-day -day life takes a toll? What happens to our commitments when daily living is not a week or a month or a year, but a decade and more? What happens to our commitment? I say there are four challenges that we all face in being faithful to God every day of our life. Four challenges that every one of us, pastors included, that we all face in our day-to-day -day, um, attempt to be faithful to God. The first one is right here, Nehemiah 13, 1. The first challenge we have is that human memory is short. If you are a married man, you know that your wife can tell you, take out the trash, and you say, yes, dear. Two point nanoseconds later, you have forgotten exactly what she said. Not because you don't care, not because you don't love, just because human memory is short. Look what it says right here. At that time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. The command was found written in it that no Ammonites or Moabites should ever enter the assembly of God. Because they did not meet the Israelites with food and water, instead they hired Balaam against them to curse them. But our God turned the curse into a blessing. When they heard the law, they separated all those of mixed descent from Israel. Now before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storeroom of the house of our God. He was a relative of Tobiah. Remember who Tobiah is. Tobiah is an enemy of the people of Israel. He is an enemy of the people of God. But he is a relative. Now, he's married into that family, so he's connected. And had prepared a large room for him where they had previously stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, and the tenths of grain, the new wine, and the oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, along with the contributions to the priests. Remember, those who served in the house of God had no land of their own. They were not supposed to have land of their own. They were supposed to live a life fully committed to God, supported by the people of Israel. The people of Israel would give their contributions to the house of God. It would be stored there. It would be distributed to these families who were involved in the service of the church. Remember, these people were serving God around the clock, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Men would go in, priests would go in at night, and they would refill the oil lamps in the house of God so the light on the menorah never went out. They would go in and they would put the fresh bread, the showbread. They would put it in the, in the presence of God so that he could see the dedication of the people. These people did not have to worry about outside jobs because they were serving the Lord. And that's why all the people brought these offerings. Now we see a problem. Eliashib, 
who is in charge of these places, has moved out the provisions of God, moved out the things of God, and he has allowed this relative to move in and take over the space that is reserved for God's worship. Tobiah has come in and taken over a large storeroom. While all this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem, says Nehemiah, because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. Now think about this. When did he come to Jerusalem? In the 20th year of the king's reign. This is now the 32nd year. So he has been in Jerusalem just about 12 years. Minus the time it takes to get there, he has been the governor of this place for 12 years. He's been gone a long time. Remember, he made a promise to the king. Oh, king, I will go for this amount of time. Then I will return and give you a report of all the things that I have done. So he goes there in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for leave of absence. We don't know how long he was in Persia. He had probably gone back to Susa. We don't know how long he was in the king's presence. It was only later he asked to come back. So maybe this is the 33rd year or the 34th year of the king's reign. So it's only later that I asked the king for leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's house. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered that the room be purified and I had the articles of the house of God restored there along with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Wow, that's harsh. He goes away for a couple years. He comes back. He says, what is this? This enemy of God, this person who had opposed the building of the wall, opposed all of the work of God, has now been given a place in the very house of God. Can you imagine such a thing? I bet you can. You know why? Because such a thing happens today in some of these large churches. Some of these large churches that we see around the world don't just have a place reserved for the worship of God. They have all kinds of things in them, silliness in them. There's a church here in Texas, of course only in Texas would you find such a thing, that there is a massive saltwater fish tank in the center of the church. And right above it, in very Christianese, Christianese type words, you should become fishers of men. A church that has to hire two full-time marine biologists just to maintain the fish tank that says you'll be fishers of men. This is like a million-dollar fish tank. Who puts a million-dollar fish tank into a church? Who does that? Other churches have gone so bold as to build bowling alleys, tennis courts, racquetball courts. They have entire sports facilities inside the church. Do you know why? because they don't want the church to have to deal with outside people. Now, wait a second. I thought the purpose of God's house was to reach out to the world and show them the goodness of God. Amen? I mean, the last time I checked the gospel, it didn't say you should build unto yourself an empire, which will keep the people inside a closed place so they don't encounter the whole world. Nicole is studying monasticism. Monasticism came up in the 400s because the, the world had become so corrupted, so sick, so perverted that people were withdrawing from the world to keep their minds and lives pure. 
we have some churches that have a, of a mindset, hey, we're going to build this place so that everybody at church can stay in the church and they never have to go into the world. They never have to encounter these sinful people. And we're just going to stay to ourselves safe inside the walls of our church. That's not the purpose of the church. And the purpose of the house of God was the worship of God's people was for them to worship the Lord, for them to support the priests, the Levites, the singers. Imagine a place where God's name is so, re so revealed, so, 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 so radiant, that they hire people to sing his praises night and day. Can you imagine how wonderful that would be to, to walk by the temple at, at the midnight hour and to hear praises being sung to God? Could you imagine how beautiful that would be to see priests coming and going in all hours of the night to tend to the house of God so that the light of God's holy place would never go out. That's amazing to me that people were so dedicated, so devoted. Now what's happening? He comes back after 12 years, maybe 14 years. We don't know for certain. Sorry, he was there for 12 years, gone for a couple, came back. So he comes back after a couple years, and they have totally forgotten everything. Consider what it says in um, Ezra 9.1. After all this had been done, some of the leaders of the people of Israel came and told me that the people, the priests and the Levites, had not kept themselves separate from the people in the neighboring country of Ammon, Moab, and Egypt, or from the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and those Amorites. They were doing the same disgusting things which these people did. See, that's the point. The point is not that other people are horrible. The reason why it says up here that they put away those people who were mixed up in their, in their, in their heritage was because these people were not worshiping God. They were worshiping the gods of other countries. They were worshiping the gods of other nations who were alien to the people in the house of God. You see, whenever you start to swirl together people with different religious thoughts, different religious beliefs, then you have problems. Do you guys remember a few years ago when our beloved Pope in the Vatican made a statement? He said, one day people shall come down from the heavens, and when they come from other worlds, they will be welcome in the Catholic Church. And my mouth dropped open, and I thought, that's it. The world has gone to heck in a handbasket. You see, when we start opening ourselves to all of these crazy thoughts, this weird thinking, how can we stay focused on who God is when we start compromising in our very beliefs about how people got here? I told you that, that on, in university campuses, they're talking about this panspermia, that everything on earth is not here because God made it. It's here because alien bacteria fell from other worlds and just took plant and grew. So we're not fish, we're actually plants that grew from some other planet. You see, that's how that poison gets into our minds, gets into our culture. And the more and more I pay attention to what's going on in the media, the more I'm certain that we have this very problem today. He had gone away for a few years. He had been the governor for 12 years. He goes away for a couple years and they forget Everything, starting with Eliashib, the priest, the very man who was in charge of keeping God's house holy, he allowed it to be corrupted. Keep going. Nehemiah 13.10. I also found out that because the portions of the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing the services had gone back 
to their own fields. So bad it was that people who were never intended to own land had to buy land so they could raise food so they wouldn't starve to death in God's service. Can you imagine such a thing? Can you imagine that God set up the perfect system so that all those who served him could serve him around the clock and not have to worry about farming? But now because the temple had been so corrupted in just a couple years, there was no food, there was no wine, there was no oil, there was nothing for the priests and the Levites and the singers, so they had to go back to work and get jobs away from the temple. That's how bad it was. Therefore, I rebuked the officials, saying, Why has the house of God been neglected? I gathered the Levites and singers together and stationed them at their post. Then all of Judah brought a tenth of the grain, new wine, and oil into the storehouses. I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and Hanan son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, to assist them, because they were considered trustworthy." Think about that. Nehemiah comes back and says, who among the servants of God is trustworthy? Who can we trust to be faithful to God and not faithful to these religious affiliations or these political affiliations? These are the names that come to the front. Wouldn't you love to have been one of these people or a descendant of one of these people and know that Nehemiah chose you because you were considered faithful to God? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to say, oh, that Miss Helen, we, we can't even impugn her because her faithfulness to God is evident to everybody. Uh, Miss Burt, wow, we can tell that she loves the Lord because her life reflects it. Wouldn't that be a great thing to have said of us? I mean, think about it. Someone can say, oh, this person's handsome, or that woman's beautiful, or this man is strong, or that man's a good businessman, he has lots of money. All of that is weak and fading, but to be said that you are faithful to God, there is no greater compliment in the world than to say that is a faithful Christian. That is a person who loves their Lord. That is such a wonderful thing. They were responsible for the distribution to their colleagues. Then, then he says to the Lord, remember me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of faithful love I have done for the house of God and for its service. So Nehemiah prays just quickly, Lord, look at what I'm going through, but don't forget me. Don't forget what I've done here. This was not easy. Can you imagine the fight he had on his hands? The fight to change the system that had corrupted in just two years? Can you imagine how hard it was to take people who were settled in their, in their mediocrity and to turn them back to a life of faithfulness? It must have been murder. So human memory is short. That's the first thing we have to worry about. God can do something for us today, and in a few months we forget his goodness. We forget his grace. And every year that we live, we should say, you know what? Today is my birthday. One more year of God's faithfulness to me. You know, I joked about turning 58, and I said, you know, I'm going to be one of those non-classic Chevys, the 58, which was just hideous. But the truth is, 58 is a great age. You know why? It's one more year of God's faithfulness that I can attest to. Amen? How many years of God's faithfulness can you attest to? Can you look back and point out to people. That's what we should be doing. Point out to people, God was faithful here. God was faithful here. God was faithful here. Isn't that a great thing to be able to do on your birthday? To just to enumerate the blessings that God has given you over all those years. I'm not sad to be 50. I think it's fantastic I made it this far. I'm looking forward to being 68 and 78. 
I wouldn't mind 98, but I don't think God's going to wait that long to come back. Amen? All right. Let's keep going. He says, so don't erase these deeds from me, O Lord. Consider Malachi 3.10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. That's what was missing. They had not brought the full tithe. Therefore, the Levites and the priests and, and, and those who sang in the temple, they couldn't support themselves because there was nothing to support them with. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says Yahweh of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I can tell you, God doesn't give you everything you want, but God gives you everything you need. Amen? I mean, you look back at your life, every time your life is turned or twisted or changed direction, look and you will see the hand of God reshaping where you're going, re-putting you on that right direction. We talked about, about Miss Cassie and her need to change directions. And only God can do that. Only God can do that in a person's life. Only the Lord can direct us to be that person that he can shape and mold and use for his glory. But he goes on. The second thing I want you to see is this. One, human memory is short. But two, daily life always tries to squeeze out the spiritual life. Daily life tries to squeeze out of your, of your time the spiritual life. Nehemiah 13, 15. At that time, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys along with wine, grapes, and figs. All kinds of goods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I warned them against selling food on that day. The Tyrians living there were importing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same so that our God brought all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you are rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath. One of the Ten Commandments was, Remember that Sabbath to keep it holy, to set that time aside for you and God. That's the important thing about the Sabbath. Not working isn't the point. Putting God at the center of that whole day, that's the point. Yeah, you know, you may have to do this and you may have to do that. You may have to take water out to the cattle. You may have to feed the cats. You may have to, to go out and take care of, 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 a, of a rooster that gets loose in, in the field. You have to go out and get him, right? Can't let him get eaten up by the coyotes. But that's necessary. That's that. That is necessary things. That is not the things that they're talking about here. Here, they were using one more day to make one more dollar or one more shekel, as the case might be. They were just concerned with money, not necessary things. Even Jesus says later, hey, if one of your calves falls down a, a hole and, and, is, and is hurt, you're going to go out and get him, right? Even on the Sabbath. Of course you will. That's necessary. But what they were doing was not necessary. And that's what made Nehemiah so angry. He said, didn't your ancestors do this? Isn't this why you got carried away into Babylon and later in Persia? They had just come back from, from, from 70 years of slavery in a foreign country. 70 years of, of being cut off from Jerusalem. And now they're, they're, they're back for a time and they take it for granted again. It's amazing. You can suffer for 10, 20, 30 years of your life. 
And as soon as you have a couple of good years, you forget everything you learned in the hard times. Amen. I'll tell you something, though. You know, my daddy, like a lot of people, went through the Great Depression and he knew what it was to have nothing and he knew what it was to have less than nothing. You know, and so those people who came through those days, they're the ones who's never forgot. They never forgot that Great Depression. They never forgot what it was to have no food in the house and no way to get anymore. They remembered. We need to remember what it was like to be outside of God's will. When we didn't have that peace, we didn't have that comfort, we didn't have that knowledge that God was at work in us. We need to remember those days because that's the days we don't want to go back to. Just like you said, you don't want to go back to those days of being cut off from the land because you're faithless to the God who brought you home. Yeah, daily life presses in and it tries to choke out our relationship with God. But here's the thing. Number three, tough love is still love. Can I get an amen from anybody who ever had to act as a parent? If you've ever had to act as a parent, your tough love is still love. Nehemiah 13, 19. When shadows began to fall on the gates of Jerusalem just before the Sabbath, remember this would be Friday night, so the sun is going down on Friday night, so the Sabbath is about to start, I gave orders that the gates be closed and not opened until after the Sabbath. That's Saturday night at sundown. So 24 full hours, those gates were closed and locked and guarded. Nobody could go out. Nobody could come in. I posted some of my men at the gates so that no goods could enter during the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and those who sell all kinds of goods camped outside of Jerusalem. But I warned them, why are you camping in front of the wall? If you do this again, I will use force against you. After that, they did not come again on the Sabbath. Then I instructed the Levites to purify themselves and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and look on me with compassion in keeping with your abundant, faithful love. Wow. Had to put guards at the gates to keep people from breaking in on the Sabbath to make money. What's going on here? Think about Philippians 4, 7 if you want to apply it to us today. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I told you, you have to be a gatekeeper. You have to be a gatekeeper to make sure that the things you see, the things you hear, the things you think about are the things of God. Because the world will throw so much stuff at you, so many questions at you. Nicole's taking this class, and it's supposed to be a class about Paul of Tarsus. And all it is is a, is, is a lady trying to say, Paul is not who we thought. Paul isn't really this person. Paul is somebody else. And we don't know anything about the real Paul because these books are all from the second century and later, and they're all poisoned and they're all fake and they're all not real. A Bible class about Paul the Tarsus saying that Paul's not real. Paul was an invention of somebody somewhere at some time. How insane is that? What they're basically saying is the book of Luke and the book of the Acts of the Apostles we don't know who wrote them. We don't know what their purpose was because the Paul presented there as the defender of the faith, the Paul who was converted on the road to Damascus wasn't a real person. And I don't know how you do that to people in a Bible class. See, and that's what gets me. They are trying to attack the eyes, the ears, and the minds of these students to cause them to question the reality of God's word. 
I'll tell you something. When someone says the Bible's full of mistakes, you need to rise up on your haunches, people, and you need to get hostile. Not mean like all them protesters walking around, spitting and screaming and acting like idiots. Don't be like them people. Them people are embarrassing. Stand up and go, wait a second. What do you mean the word of God is full of mistakes? What do you mean it's not the word of God? What do you mean there was no Jesus? You better, you better call people to task. A lot of times, well, I heard in a show, wait a minute, I don't care what the show said, you prove to me from the Bible and from history that, that what I'm telling you is not true. And they can't do it. They can't prove it because they heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody. The reason why Nehemiah posted guards at the gate was to keep these people, these poison pills, from sneaking into the city and violating the Sabbath. He put the guards there to make sure they would not come in. And when they camped outside, he said, hey, you, what are you doing down there? Get away from here or I'll send the guards to run you out. It says, and they went away. See, it's kind of hard to keep the gates closed all the time. But once you drive off the people who are not obedient to God's word, then you can come and go as you please. People can still travel outside the gate. They can still have their freedom. All Nehemiah wants to do is protect them from those who would subvert the truth. Do you pay attention to what's going on in the world today? You should pay attention. I've been seeing so many disturbing things in the news and in documentaries and in other shows. And I'm all like, that's not right. Wait a minute. I was there. That didn't happen. You know, I'm old enough to have seen some of these things. You know, kids will talk to me about 9-11. I'll go, okay, 9-11, I was there. What's up? What do you want to know? And they have got these ridiculous stories. And I'm like, where did you hear that? And they go, oh, a teacher said. And I'm like, a teacher said what? And I want to know what's being said because I hear people saying it was America's fault that 9-11 happened. And I don't know about you, but I bleed red, white, and blue. And when you say it's my country's fault this happened, you better have some evidence or we're going to have a problem. We have an issue, a talking point, as it were. And see, nobody calls them to account, so nobody challenges the things they do. Look at the stuff they do on TV. And they get away with it because nobody wants to challenge what's happening. Well, when people start attacking the word of God, I stand up and I say, no, this is not going to happen. Not on my watch. You better have some really good answers for what you're saying. And they usually don't. They usually don't know anything. They heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody. Now, let's finish this off. Human memory is short. That is a given. Daily life does try to squeeze out the spiritual. Your, your, your schedule is so compacted, you don't have time to read the Word of God. You don't have time to do a five-minute devotional. You feel like you don't have time to breathe, much less pray. That's how life is. It just crushes you out. Can I get an amen if you've ever been crushed out? But see, Nehemiah gives them tough love. He forces them to look at what they're doing and forces them to look in that mirror that we talked about last week and go, you know what? What we're doing isn't right. What we are allowing to happen isn't right. And that's crazy. The last thing I want you to see is this. The human heart will lie to you. Like I told you, I heard a lady say to her daughter, honey, follow your heart. It's always right. And I just wanted to grab that woman and go, are you insane? The human heart is the most ridiculously fallible thing in the world. Oh, but they're in love. No, they're not. They're in lust. Love is a commitment that takes into account everything that is involved in a lifetime commitment 
to each other. Amen? No marriage was ever held together by love. Marriages were held together by a common faith, a common bond, and a common, a common goal. A commitment to each other. Marriages fail because love comes and love dies quickly. The honeymoon is short for a reason. Because real life is lived out in the pain and the struggle of day-to-day -day existence. You don't know how much you love somebody till they're hurt or till they're hurting. You don't know how much you love somebody till you stand in a hospital room beside them, praying that they recover. That's when you know how much you care about somebody. That's when you know what love is. Love is not skipping through fields with flowers. Love is going through the hard times together and coming out the other side, knowing that you are fully committed to this person. Now, that's just my opinion. I'm not drawing that from anywhere. I'm just saying, after 58 years of living, I figured out a couple things. Amen? Just a couple things. Plus, I know my Greek words, and I know that, that the eros has nothing to do with the agape. And we'll get into that sermon later. All right, let's do this. Nehemiah 13, 23. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but they could not speak Hebrew. Okay, so why is that important? It's, in it's important because God's word was in Hebrew. God's word had to be read to them by Ezra. It had to be interpreted by the priests because the people couldn't understand the word of God. We have people today who can't understand the word of God even when they read it. So here's the thing. The problem here is that they have allowed their children to speak the language of the world and not the language of God's law. Not the language where God speaks to them in understandable ways to teach them how to live their life. I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of their men, pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourselves. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? Now he pulls out the big gun. He pulls out Solomon. There was not a king like him among many nations. He was loved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Yet... Foreign women drew him into sin. Why then should we hear about you doing all this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Each one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, had become a son-in-law to Sambalat the Hornite, so I drove him away from me. They had married into these political families, these wealthy families, and they had compromised the things of God. That's why Elisha, the high priest, did what he did. He did it because his sons were connected politically to this person. It's crazy. It is crazy that you would do this. It's crazy that you would climb into bed with the world. But consider this. There are women every day who write to murderers, mass murderers, and say, I love you, I want to marry you. And I'm thinking, no, they need psychiatric help. Seriously. People who wanted to marry Charles Manson. Why? The man was a stark, raving lunatic. He never had problems in prison. Do you know why? They asked the people in his cell block, why don't you mess with Charles Manson? And they said, these are murderers, rapists, the worst kind of people in our society. They said, that man's crazy. They said, he's nuts. He is not human. They thought he was the son of the devil, and they thought they couldn't mess with him and come out alive. They were pretty much right. 
Nobody ever bothered Manson because they thought he was sicker than they were. And that says a lot about our American prison system. Amen? It does say a lot. These men had willfully joined themselves to people who were not worshipers of God, who did not respect God, who would only use God's house as a place to make money. And they did it willfully, willingly. Was it because there were no Israelite women? No. There were plenty of Israelite women. They just wanted what they saw, and what they wanted was political advantage. Same reason Solomon married so many women. Political advantage. Politics are never a reason to forsake your, your relationship to God. This is what he says at the very end. Remember them, my God, for defiling the priesthood as well as the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I purified them from everything foreign and assigned specific duties to each of the priests and Levites. I also arranged for the donation of wood at the appointed times and at the first fruits. Remember me, my God, with favor. Remember me with favor. It's interesting. Solomon, who had all these wives, Solomon, who took to himself all of these foreign women, all these foreign people, who built little altars for them so they could worship their own gods right there in the, right there in, in the king's palace. What did Solomon himself say about his actions? Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7.26. Some people debate that it was Solomon. I know it was Solomon. Just read it and you'll figure it out. And I find something more bitter than death. Wow. Solomon says, I find something more bitter than death itself. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. He said this because he was taken. He had made himself a part of all of this, and it had taken him, it had weakened him. And as I said, his legacy was destroyed the minute he died because his kingdom was divided and would never be united again. That's a sad thing. Solomon knew what he had done. He knew his mistake. And in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's trying to warn people, don't go down this route. We wrap this up by looking at what happened in the life of Nehemiah. He has 12 successful years. He goes away for two years. He comes back, and it seems like in two years, everybody has forgotten everything he taught them. It must have broken his heart. But what did he not do? He didn't settle for the status quo. He went back and made one more cleansing of the people of Israel, of the priests, of the Levites. He set things in order one more time. The sad thing is, and he knew it, Nehemiah knew it in his day, his corrections wouldn't last. Why? Because human memory is short. After he straightened it up, they messed it up all over again. Because he knew the daily pressures of life and making money and fame and success and political power, all of that would trump out their relationship with God. And it will happen to us if we let it. It will happen to us if we let it. Tough love is still love. God gives us tough love. God lets us go our own way, do our own thing. And when we crash and burn, God still loves us. He still wants to bring us back. He still wants to restore us. And that is the best news of this whole book. Because why? Because the human heart will lie to you. It will tell you what you want to hear. But in the end, a vow is a vow. You have to know that what you have promised God, you have to fulfill. If you're a Christian and you get off track, Go back. Go back, reestablish that walk, 
go back, be faithful. No matter how old you get, it's never, you're never too old to go back and be faithful to God again. Amen? You know why it's important for us to do that? Because in that room back there is the future of this church. Back in that room, that's the future. We have to be faithful so that they will see us faithful so that they will be faithful. If we are faithless people, they will become faithless people. And we will have failed in our most important job, which is to model for the next generation what it means to be the people of God. Amen? And we're not going to do that. Amen? Let's pray.